0: Welcome to Into Africa, my name is Mvemba Pezo Dizolele. I'm a senior fellow and the director of the Africa program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. This is a podcast where we talk everything Africa, politics, economics, security, and culture. Welcome.
1: Hello, this is Catherine Nzuki with the CSIS Africa program. I'm filling in for Mvemba this week. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Conflict in the Sahel is a complex crisis. This multidimensional crisis is the convergence of violent extremism, food insecurity, weak governance, and the limited presence of the state in some regions, as well as poor service delivery. Together, they have deteriorated the security environment in the region and the humanitarian needs continue to grow. According to the U.N. Refugee Agency, 2.7 million people have been internally displaced across the region, fleeing violence and persecution. Twenty-nine million people are in dire need of humanitarian assistance. Five million of them are children. These crises stem from long-term structural factors of fragility, including economic inequalities, poverty, development challenges, and the impacts of climate change. In order to raise international awareness of the deteriorating humanitarian and security situation in the Sahel, a delegation of 10 West African Catholic and Muslim religious leaders from Niger, Mali, Burkina Faso, Cote d'Ivoire, and Ghana are visiting D.C. this week the delegation is here to encourage lawmakers to take decisive action to address the underlying grievances that are driving conflict in the Sahel through long-term investments in civil, society, and economic development, as well as social accountability. Joining me today to discuss insecurity and peace building in the Sahel are two clerics, Bishop Alfred Ajanta and Sheikh, Dr. Hazik Hussein. Zachariah. Bishop Ajanta is the Bishop of the Diocese of Navrongo-Bolga-Tanga in Ghana. Bishop Ajanta convenes and chairs the Doba-Kandinga Conflict Transformation Committee, which is coordinating peacebuilding efforts in these communities. He also leads the Pontifical Mission Societies and is the chairman of the Diocesan Peacebuilding and Justice Commission. Sheikh Zakaria is the chairman of the Interreligious Dialogue Committee of the Northern Region of Ghana. The Sheikh has also formerly served as the president of the Coalition of Muslim Organizations in Ghana, and he is a member of the Northern Regional Peace Council. He has worked as a consultant on interreligious relations and won the Martin Luther King Jr. Award for Peace and Social Justice. Gentlemen, welcome to the program.
0: Thank you. Thank you very much.
1: If I could start with you, Bishop Ajanta, please tell us more about the Sahel Peace Initiatives and the objectives of your visit to D.C.
0: Thank you very much. We are very pleased to be here and the opportunity to speak with you and share with you our um, mission here. First of all, the Sahel Peace Initiative is a brainchild of one of our respected leaders in the region, person of the Archbishop of Ouagadougou, Cardinal Philip Widrago, who in 2019, thereabouts, felt the need to draw attention to what was happening in the Sahel region. Through the support of CRS, all the managed to get in touch with those countries really affected by the crisis, that is Niger, Mali, Burkina Faso, the Bishops' Conference to come together and to find out what can we do to respond as a church to the crisis because it's affecting the church's life and all that. And so that was the reason why these um, clerics came together. Of course, together, they also tried to invite the Muslim leaders to be able to give a concerted response to the crisis. Thankfully, CRS bought into idea and they supported very much. And so 2019, this meeting took place in Wagadugu. From then, all the other countries, especially for us in Ghana, which is a neighboring country and Côte d'Ivoire and all that, we felt that, well, we needed to be brought into a picture and they were kind enough to let us know that, well, what is happening over there could eventually also get to the coastal countries. And therefore, we are here also part of the delegation because of the, where we are located. And so this is the, the history behind the Sahel Peace Initiative. Basically, it is about raising awareness of the crisis in the Sahel region. And we also want to show as leaders, religious leaders, what we are doing already on the ground. And that is why both Muslims and Catholics, we felt part of being called to work together and to raise the awareness. And of course, eventually to let people know that we will need the resources in order to be able to implement what we are doing Mm. in order to return peace to the Sahel region.
1: Thank you, Bishop. And I'd actually like to dive first into the crisis in the Sahel itself and what is driving it. If I can turn to you, Sheikh Zakaria, if you could just walk us through, what are the root causes? What's driving insecurity, instability, and conflict in the Sahel?
2: Thank you, glad to be part of this discussion. It is hoped that this exchange will go far to inform people about what is happening in Sahel. Many people are not aware the extent to which the Sahelian region is suffering from the atrocities of violent extremists. The violent extremists have taken advantage of the long time conflicts in that area. There have been a long period of suffering from protracted conflicts rooted in historical grievances that have been worsened by inequitable management of resources, poor governance, and other factors such as the economic mismanagement and corruption. So these form the root causes, and indeed. As a consequence of this, the young people, in particular, and women, are suffering. They feel disappointed, marginalized, and they feel hopeless. And so it is easier for violent extremists to convince them. Mm. With small stunts. they can get them recruited to support the kind of uh, atrocities that they are visiting on the population.
1: Yeah. Sheikh, if you could help us paint a picture of a young person that is susceptible to be drawn into violent extremism, what challenges do they face and what are those incentives that these groups offer?
2: Yeah, of course, there are two scenarios here. Some of the young people are recruited by force,
3: mm.
2: a community is attacked, mm. young strong men are arrested and forced to be part of the group. We have incidences like that. Then we have also cases where the extremists extend friendly hands to the community people even before they attack. We the community, study the situation that in which they are, and align themselves to the concerns of the marginalized And so be able to convince them that we are people that can help you out Mm. of your problems. We can give you good salary and can give you protection as long as you be on our part and fight along with us. So unemployed youth who have maybe finished school, even university graduates who are out of school and want jobs to do are sitting there still being fed by the parents and so on, yeah. they feel left out. Yeah. And so they are ready to join any group as long as they can, that can assure them something that they can sustain their lives on. Mm-hmm. So that is the situation that we have here. It's not that the youth like to be violent or to be radicalized, to take arms against their own people. No, but they do so because they think that if they don't do that, living in abject poverty is itself a kind Mm -hmm. of war.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: Right, so that is the situation.
1: Yeah, I agree with you fully. I don't think anyone has some sort of innate desire, right, to pick up arms against their own people. What I'm hearing is this crisis, the recruitment of youth, ultimately stems from these long-term structural issues of poverty
2: that's right
1: economic inequalities, unemployment and that's these right. are valid grievances and here come these armed groups that exploit that
2: That's right. right
1: And back to you Bishop, I wanted to touch on something you mentioned earlier in the formation of the Sahel peace initiative was first to raise awareness of the crisis in the Sahel but also to raise awareness to countries like Ghana, Cote d'Ivoire and other littoral states of this growing threat that that's bearing down on these coastal West African countries. So please just walk us through the threat and how you see it from your point of view in Ghana.
0: Yeah, Ghana, we certainly um, belong to the southern coastal countries. And that we can identify a number of reasons why we we should be Mm concerned. First of all, um, the Sahel, we know that it's spreading. And there is, first of all, the issue of uh, the threat of spillover. Mm -hmm. Spillover in the sense that we already have People have made appearances in Ghana with the, I mean, threats to the local population and this is also mostly to the radicalized religious extremists. Mm. So they come to a village and they threaten them. So that's the very first thing, the spillover of the conflict in trying to instill a certain religious radicalism in the local population. The second thing is the refugees. Already, people have fled from Mali, Niger, and all to Burkina Faso. Now, we are also getting Burkina Faso, where the villages have been attacked. And uh, as I speak now, since last year, December, we had about 1,600 plus uh, refugees. Currently, we count about 4,000 that have crossed the border into my area. And so, with the support of CRS and uh, other local uh, NGOs, and uh, we have been able to provide whatever is needed. So the second thing is the refugees that are coming in. And the number is set to increase if the violence is not stemmed, this number could increase. And we're getting more worried because the local communities that have received these people, their resources are also running out. Right. Some of the families have managed to take them in. They want to share and they're sharing with them whatever they have. But how long can you do that? Yeah. Within the next um, couple of months, we the rainy season is going to begin and they're going to start to do the cropping and all that. The food that they have may be running out. So that is the second point that I really want to say why we are concerned, in order to be able to take care of not only the host communities, but also the refugees who are coming. And most of these are women and children, and so they need to be protected and all that. Furthermore, we are very much concerned because in our own backyard, we have what I would call the fault lines where there is already the fertile ground for some of the extremists to take advantage.
1: Yeah, I want to switch to these internal conflicts in a second, but I just want to stay on the topic of refugees for now. Has the government of Ghana been able to launch an effective program to welcome and integrate refugees that are coming down from Burkina Faso, or do you feel that it has been more of a community-led response oh,
0: certainly the government has been part of that we, what we call the national um, disaster management organization nadmo mm-hmm. which is a government funded of course but they are always overwhelmed right. because there are so many places and all so they are very much involved we also have the unhcr they are also very much involved and supporting with uh, whatever they can and of course crs is there but much of the local support is coming from the local communities. Mm. So yes, the government is very much involved, but as usual, the government can do everything.
1: Yeah.
0: And that's the reason why the support is needed. Yeah. yeah,
1: It's wonderful to hear that this combination of government-led, community-led, and donor-led response has been effective, but as you're rightly pointing, these numbers are set to increase as the crisis worsens. And so if we can move to internal conflict in Ghana. While Ghana contends with the threat of militant groups from Burkina Faso and elsewhere in the Sahel, it also grapples with conflicts in the northern and upper eastern region. Sheik, if I can start with you, please provide some background to the conflict in northern Ghana and where things stand today.
2: Well, the conflicts in northern Ghana, they make your tension areas uh, had been Yendi, Bimbila, over a And this has been going on for quite a long time. Bimbila, it's not too long, but it's also over close to a decade now. The nature of the conflict is that there are two groups from one grandparent who are entitled to the skin or if you like, the stool of the chieftaincy. And somewhere along the line, as they, they succeed, one time it goes to one side of the one concession, other time it goes to the other. So we have the Abu andani gates.
3: Mm.
2: One time it goes to the Abudus or to the Andanis. But at some time, I think some people try to work it out that only one side continue to ascend to the throne and that became a problem and there were armed confrontations between the two groups it is because it is the central dagomba tribe Mm. and they are the majority in this region There's no family that you go and you will not find Abudu or Andani. They are always mixed. Mm -hmm. But when there's a problem, you see, the fighting begins from individual homes Mm -hmm. before even it, it escalates to, you know, so that was the situation. And it continued. It went through legal procedures and so on to find address and so. It took a long time. But recently with the coming in of the government of nanakufado they Mm -hmm. managed to resolve the problem in yendi and that has taken a big loss of the scheme of the Dagomba people Mm -hmm. but we still have problem in bimbila Mm Bimbila is just a similar from one family. They don't have Abdul and Danny Azai, but it's just from one family who are unable to decide who should be the one to succeed. So the problem is all about succession, how to organize succession in a manner it doesn't bring problems. So up to now, there's still a standing committee dealing with the case in Bimbila.
1: Mm-hmm. And is it the competition over the chieftaincy? Is it a question of succession or are there deeper grievances? Is it perhaps a competition over land or is it just the weight of that title? Please like, help me unpack well, that a I more. think
2: it is just that the succession plan mm-hmm. has not been developed in such a way that there would be smooth transition. Mm-hmm. Formerly, there was a plan. But this plan was violated, and so it got disrupted at some point. And that is where the conflict started, right? Gotcha. So now what the government have done is to help the prominent chiefs in Ghana to come together and put up a plan that they should follow.
1: Bishop ajenta please similarly help us understand what is driving conflict, specifically the Doba-Kandiga conflict in the Upper East region?
0: Yeah. Well, the Doba-Kandiga conflict is a dispute between two communities of the same, I would say, language and culture. But it's a dispute over a piece of area, land, where people claim that it belongs to one group or one village. And the other one say okay it belongs to the side so this has created a lot of tension for many years and people have fought over it and there have been violence and so it's one of the reasons for that but apart from the issue of the land there's also the political traditional authority mm-hmm. because these villages are governed by chiefs you know in africa the chief is very quite a very uh, important role to play. So when the dispute is over the land, we say, who chief has a responsibility for the people who are living on that land? Mm. And so it also comes about, or who owns that land so that he can dispose it to other people and all that. The chief tendency is not just about the power, but it's also about the control of resources. Sometimes in some places they have power over the the land and the resources and all that. So who can use the land and all that? So I think that is, these are the two reasons, I mean, in terms of the causes, the land, the traditional, but of course we can always rule out politics. Mm -hmm. You know, politics uh, can come into the area and try to say, okay, we want to make sure that, of course, in Ghana, our country has become so polarized in terms of the political leanings. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes where you are, people can easily read into that. So I think this is where I can see the causes for the conflict.
1: You okay. Know, uh, so what I'm hearing is the chieftaincy, as you've both reiterated, okay. is not a ceremonial position, but actually a position that wields a lot of local power in how resources are distributed and utilized. That's really interesting. And I would like to take this opportunity to dive deeper into your work. You are both religious peace builders and people that are working actively in inter-religious dialogue. I'm curious to hear more about your work in this field and what drew you to the work of peace building in the first place. I can start with you, Sheik, and then I'll have the bishop go second.
2: Yeah, as you mentioned, interreligious dialogue had been there in both Christian and Muslim constituencies, but it has become very significant in contemporary times, because of the challenges the religions are facing, that some people are using religion as centrifuge mm. or a scapegoat to commit atrocities in the world. And if religion is being abused to cause problems in the world, the right institution to respond should be the religious institutions, mm. right? So we have found interreligious dialogue as a mechanism for bringing understanding, respect, and cohesion in our communities because we live everywhere. We live together. We live together, Muslim Christians, particularly in Africa. And if we are facing common challenges, mm-hmm. particularly in terms of violent extremism. Mm -hmm. We should be prepared together to work to resist Mm -hmm. such forces. We interact in many ways. We share the same health services. We eat and drink from the same markets. So it is only commonsensical that if we share common resources, we should be close enough to determine how these resources are best used or utilized to our benefit, And we must have a voice in determining mm-hmm. how things work, even at the level of the state. You see that in the Northern Ghana, for example, the greatest number of schools managed by Christians, missionary schools, and we have Islamic education unit also managing their schools. There are a few government schools. So you see, at the time of establishing those schools, the concept of dialogue was not strong enough. But we are trying to get Christians and Muslims and others to understand that we can improve our educational institutions, improve our youth training centers, and other things, you know, through Interfaith dialogue.
1: It's also interesting to see how you're working both in conflict resolution using inter religious dialogue, but actually also peace building, right? By working with children and youth especially, whether they study in Islamic schools or Christian schools. Bishop, I'll turn it over to you. I'm also mm-hmm. curious to hear about your philosophy to interreligious dialogue and anything else you might like to I think
0: like uh, to add. He, he's um, made uh, good points about that. Uh, what I just need to add is every religion is a, that's a component of peace. Every religion is founded on the values of peace because our God is a God of peace. Mm-hmm and so you cannot have a religion that promotes violence and say that it is genuine. So I think that is a, what is driving most of us into the father. Well, religions religion and our faith is a force for peace and therefore we need to be able to use it. Secondly, I believe that in Africa and most especially in West Africa people trust their religious leaders. Yeah. There is a certain commitment to, whether, to the, whether it's Muslim or Christian or Catholic, they trust what their leaders say or do. And so we also felt that coming together and demonstrating to our people who follow us that these are people who understand, who want to work together, and we have a common goal, we'll, have a, we'll carry them on board. And is the reason why I believe that this is very important that we have come to the U.S., Yes. Uh, united as a Muslim and Catholic, and some people may be surprised that Muslims and Christians are working together because in some places you is unheard of. And so I think that that confidence and trust that our people have in us is what is also driving us, and to be able to use that to be able to bring about peace. Yeah. And thirdly, you know, the churches at the mosque we are at every nook and cranny of the country, yes, where the government cannot reach or you goes, the church is there, the mosques mm-hmm. are there. And so if we really want to touch people's lives, we realize that we are the people that we need to go through, we need to partner with us. And that is why the issue of the Doba Kandiga, it's just simply because the community trusted the church. Mm. How we're able to facilitate that. Of course, they are the people who eventually created the peace. Mm. But who we were at the back and they trusted us. And even the very day that they wanted to have the reconciliation, they said, you must be there. Mm. And so we came in, all the traditional leaders and all the other churches with the Muslim leaders, we're all, we're all there. So we said prayers and blessed the land for them. So religion is a force for peace. And that is why we really want to send this message very clearly that if we want to tie the people and want to make this transformation at the grassroots level, we are credible partners. Not because we are doing anything special, but because we believe that when we appeal to people to understand that we are all of, the same stock and that we have a common goal people will be able to buy into that
1: yeah. religion yeah. as a force for good <laughs> exactly and as a trusted force I'm curious you know we've heard the advantages of being religious leaders working in peace building and the authority I would say that you carry as leaders but what are some of the limitations that you've run into or what are the hurdles that you've run into acting as religious peace builders
0: well, I think I can begin by saying that sometimes there can be a bit of misunderstanding. And the Sheikh has already alluded to that. One of the disadvantages is that when you have people within your own camp who misuse religion, mm. and it gives a bad name to everybody. When people take the texts, whether it is the Bible or the Quran, and they interpret it in a way that does not promote peace. Mm. And that can sometimes even generate violence. So as religious leaders, we are very much aware that we need to be able to ensure that the right thing is done. But the limitation is that sometimes you, you are not able to be everywhere to be able to ensure that the followers are able to be on the same page. Mm-hmm. And that's why we can sometimes feel limited and uh, disadvantaged. But at the same time, we believe that when people are willing to hear and to listen, some of these things can easily be corrected. Yeah. The second thing that we are limited in terms of, course, we have come back to that. What we are doing, because it is not just about trying to ensure that people live together and that, but it's also about making sure that people live in dignity.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: And as religious leaders and as churches and mosques, we don't have the resources. Mm-hmm. And so most of them you may see, for instance, take the example of the refugees.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: When they are knocking at the doors, they are knocking. The very first people that are knocking at the doors are people who are members of the church or members of the mosque. Yeah. Sometimes you don't have the resources to be able to do that. And that's one of the reasons why we keep saying that. The transformation that we want to bring to the grassroots level, then the civil service organizations or local leadership should be very, very fundamental. And that's why we are positioning ourselves to show that the work that we are doing is credible Mm -hmm. and we have evidence to show that we are making an impact. But the limitation is certainly with the resources and also trying to ensure that we control the people who are our followers to make yeah. sure that they, they understand that we want they should follow us because we, we really want to take them on the right piece to peace and development.
1: Yeah. Using religion to address the abuse of religion Precisely. <laughs> can come yeah, with so, its limitations. So yeah, so please. Yes what
0: please. Yes, uh, to
2: pick away you left so oh. see globally religion has always been associated with functionalism. Mm. And also of conflicts generally so our challenge is when we come out talking about peace building and this mm. we have the feeling that there are some people out there who may not trust us because mm. they think that religion is a factor of conflict mm. but of course things are changing in the past how many people were discussing Dialogue was not at the discussion table at all. So things are changing, and we are beginning to know from the emergencies of the situation that we are in right now that religion must play a critical role in uniting people to ensure that we all enjoy peace. At the moment, I think the world itself needs interfaith dialogue.
1: I couldn't agree more. I think I'm glad that religious peace building and interreligious dialogue, which has been going on for decades and centuries, is now hopefully gaining the much needed resources from partners like the U.S., which actually brings me to... My next question, you know, the Biden administration is now making its pivot to Africa. We saw the U.S.-Africa Leaders Summit last December, and this year alone, we have seen several high-level visits to the continent, including Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen, First Lady, Dr. Jill Biden, and Secretary of State Antony Blinken was in Niger last week, the first visit by a U.S. Secretary of State to the country, where he announced $150 million in humanitarian aid for the Sahel. And Vice President Kamala Harris is slated to visit Ghana, Tanzania, and Zambia later this month. And so there's a clear push from the Biden administration to forge or reforge partnerships on the continent. And so how can we leverage this current moment to work with the U.S. in addressing insecurity in the Sahel? And I'd like to first focus on the short-term needs before we address the long-term drivers of conflict. What are the current short-term needs that need to be met? What are the humanitarian gaps that need to be filled? I could start with you, Bishop.
0: Yeah, I think it's very heartwarming to know that the U.S. is beginning to turn attention to especially Africa and most importantly the Sahel region. Within the space of a couple of months, the presence in the U.S. certainly been stepped up. And uh, we want to believe that this is certainly out of love also for a country or a continent in an area that has suffered for long, silently. And we know well that the, the U.S. has the capacity to be able to do that. But talking about the short-term needs of what we really would want the government to pay attention to is the humanitarian crisis. You've mentioned at the beginning of the, this interview, you read mentioned the statistics in terms mm-hmm. of the number of people who are not getting enough food and shelter. And then we have also the issue about education. A whole generation of kids are going to miss out because they have been driven out, schools have been closed. So in the short term, we will want the help to address the food security of the refugees who are fleeing their countries and they have no way of returning immediately. Mm -hmm. Then health needs, because Mm -hmm. this is also certainly one of the crises, because if people are driven out, they have no food, the health situation is also very critical. And because a lot of health centers have been closed. So where are these people? I was very much struck when I visited one of the camps in December last year. Normally in December it's very cold. And children, as I say, have maybe one or two kids with their mothers and running noses to a school at the time. And they had no place to stay. I mean, they just had the makeshift places. Yeah. And you imagine that people are living and sleeping on the bare floor. And so the crisis, the humanitarian crisis, is very, very serious. And we are talking about long term, short term. We need to address this immediately. To make sure that the children don't miss out in the school because it's a long, I mean, a whole generation that might be likely to miss out in their education. We are looking at that provision of water, sanitation, and shelter, and food, and then health. I think these are the immediate needs that we will want to underline.
1: And what are the best avenues for this humanitarian aid and resources? Is it best provided through a mixture of direct funding to the Ghanaian government? Is it to organizations like CRS that are operating there? Is it to communities? What's the best and you think most efficient way for these resources to be distributed?
0: I think we've made it very clear. Over and over, we've mentioned about they need to recognize the local leadership. Mm. And we just mentioned that sometimes the people, the, this local leadership are the people who are living right with the people who are suffering.
3: Mm.
0: We're not saying that that's why we mentioned very much the government is doing its bit. But most often this is the, through the official protocols and all. Sometimes that can take quite a while. Mm-hmm. So You're right. I mean, what we are saying is that, yes, there are certain things that we can prevent from the government being dealt with because they are also part of the response. But if you really want to be very efficient, and this is what we are saying, we have demonstrated clearly that these people are arriving immediately we have been able to respond to them immediately because of the verifier that there was not that kind of protocols and all, and we were able to ensure that this is done very very efficiently yeah. so i think crs is a good example of uh, that partnership that they have been able to support us to be able to do that yeah. and other ngos who are in the area but the impact is very more felt when it is done through the local leadership this is what i would say
1: When people in D.C. or donor communities discuss locally-led humanitarian provision, the question of accountability always comes up. And I'm not sure how strongly I agree with this point. The response will be, well, we want to work with communities, but we don't know how to hold people accountable. How do we make sure that these resources are being distributed via the right channels? How do we avoid corruption, abuse of funds? And so what would you say to that? What are some ways in which you as a local leader ensure accountable and credible use of these humanitarian resources?
0: I think this is very, very critical because CRS has a component which they have been developing and using that for quite a while, and that is capacity building of the local partners. Mm -hmm. And part of that is also the the component of accountability. Mm -hmm. And because we're working with CRS, because these are people who are being on the ground, and they have been able to ensure that we will not work through your organization if you don't show the structures and clarity in terms of responsibility and accountability mm-hmm. and that has always been conditions for the support that we give mm-hmm. so this is very very critical and they said they can demonstrate very clearly they can show evidence or they verify that well the people have been able to live up to that maybe requirement because they solely say you need to go through certain criteria and conditions before we become part and parcel of the program Okay. So that is certainly an area that we are very much aware and we also insist very much on our officers doing the right thing. Mm.
1: Good. Was that $150 million announcement by Secretary Blinken, is it enough to meet these short-term needs or do you think the international community needs to rally and raise much more to support humanitarian assistance in the region?
2: Yeah, we believe that it might not be enough but this commitment by the United States is commendable. United States government also has diplomatic influence across the world that they can use that to mobilize partners to support the gray areas where the amount that the government is giving may not be able to cover. So I yeah. believe that, yeah, it may not be nobody can do more diplomatically to mobilize friendly partners to support the details.
1: Yeah. yeah. And finally, <laughs> the long term, your delegation is here in D.C. in part to discuss with lawmakers and encourage them to take decisive action to address these underlying grievances that are driving conflict through long-term investments in economic development and social accountability. So please walk us through what these recommendations are. What are the, in your opinion, the long-term solutions to this crisis in the Sahel and what role can the U.S. play in realizing this? I'll start with you, Sheikh, and I'll turn
2: over to the bishop. Thank you. Well, the root causes, mainly economic and social inequalities. These have to be addressed by all of us, right? As a matter of fact, the youth and the women are those who are under severe challenge of this situation. So we believe that as a way of correcting the system and getting this work better. We need to empower the young people and the women. The young people are in their numbers Mm -hmm. out there on the streets, they have nothing to do. And as we mentioned previously, such a tuition allows wrong guys to come and pick them give them stipends, and use them in the way that they like. So if we can get the youth to be self employed, mm. to gain marketable skills, mm. they would be able to be on their own, be self-reliant, and they will not look for jobs in where it is so dangerous as being part of violent extremists. That is dangerous. That they will not Consider that as an option. But when they have nothing, then there is a problem. So the young people, at the moment, there are a few training centers for the young people. And some uh, university graduates have ideas what to do, Mm -hmm. but startup capital is a problem.
1: They don't have the resources. They don't
2: have the resources to start. How beautiful would it look like if the U.S. government, for example, could partner some of our microfinance institutions to provide technical support and also train and support these young people to be able to start on their own. Otherwise, you get a training, you come out, you don't have a startup capital, what do you do? Mm. You go back to ground zero. Mm. So that is where we need the United States government to actually support us to do. From the point of view of the state as a whole, I think that the United States government can cooperate with our countries in providing military training and other logistical support Hardware support and things like that. Many of these countries that the violent extremists take Burkina Faso more than or close to half the countries in the hands of the violent extremists. They have more sophisticated guns and equipment to fight. Mm. The government side does not have. So what I'm hearing is
1: truly the key to long term. And sustainable peace is this triple nexus approach of humanitarian assistance, right? So meeting these short-term needs. And then you have development, specifically empowering the youth and women by creating safe jobs, mobilizing capital and financing to help young entrepreneurs and moreover just to grow businesses in the region and then also capacity building and vocational training for the youth. And so that's development. then the third is security, specifically security security sector assistance to governments in the region Hmm. for them to be able to at least comprehensively tackle the security challenge. Hmm. Bishop, I'll turn to you with the same question from what you've seen in your work. What are the long-term solutions here? What's the long-term approach, and how can the U.S. be of assistance?
0: I think Sheikh has mentioned almost every the points that we would look forward to. I don't want to repeat that, but there is one thing I want to add, and we've said it came that over and over again, and that is the time-tested performance of local leadership.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: And I think that we cannot insist on that more We want the U.S. government to identify and to train and to partner with community and uh, local traditional leadership so that we'll be able to do more.
1: Who knows the local community better than the locals, right? And if it's a locally-led peace-building effort, you're building and creating the foundations for this community to sustain itself.
0: And and to last year.
1: Gentlemen, I've very much so enjoyed this conversation. Bishop Alfred Ajanta, Sheikh Dr. Hazik Hussein Zakaria, thank you so much for joining us on this podcast and place. for this fruitful conversation. Ramadan Mubarak to you and to all of our listeners. <laughs> thank you, thank, thank you, you all.
0: Thank you very much, Kurt, and we are very wow. grateful for your time. Thank you for listening. We want to have more conversations about Africa. Tell your friends. Subscribe to our podcast at Apple Podcasts. You can also read our analysis and report at CSIS.org slash Africa. So long.